Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Joe Campbell, the CTO at T-Systems International, and we discuss the evolution of industrial IoT and 5G, converting technology into business opportunity, and how having a willingness to invest in the unknown can give you a leg up on the competition. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Joe! Joel, you got a beard that's not on all your pictures. It will be soon. I actually have it on my whiteboard, <laughs> new pictures. Yeah, the beard's something new. Uh, there you go. What, what is it, uh, all this uh, quarantining? You don't know hair? I know my hair is rather long, too. Yeah, you know, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of turning 32. And then when my dad, um, when he was in his 30s, early 30s he got alopecia and just lost like all the hair on his body and okay. yeah and so it was strange it wasn't in like hereditary thing that we knew about or anything like that and so I said well if there's any time to grow my first beard it's now <laughs> and I'll give it a shot and that will at least have some pictures say I did it and let's hope I don't lose my hair let's hope I didn't get that gene or whatever yeah, it looks pretty good it looks pretty good i've been fortunate on the hair front too myself at 57 i still have a fair amount so that's a good thing dude you look like a champion you got a ton of hair ah i appreciate that i love your uh, your pillows you got a reese's p or a reese cup pillow and a hershey candy pillow yes actually those are for each one of our dogs we have two yorkie poos one's um named Hershey because he's brown and the other one is Pasha Allerese or hence Reese Pieces. Plus it's my favorite candy. <laughs> it is uh, the, the peanut butter cups, Reese's and the Reese yes. Pieces uh, yes. growing up. Here's a fun story for you. So my um, cousins, I was a, I was a, a bigger kid and uh, my cousins thought it'd be funny to get me to do things for candy. And yes. <laughs> so, so they said, they said, if you can run around the, the house 15 times, um, we'll give you a piece of the, uh, another Reese's, but I'd already eaten a bunch of candy before that. And they knew this. And so they got me to get sick because they were fun cousins, right? <laughs> <laughs> in the pursuit of candy. And they just saw me in the front yard and they're like, what's wrong with Joel? And, and my cousins were just laughing and, uh, yeah, got a little tummy ache running, running around after eating a bunch of candy. But there you go. Well, it's just, you know, good thing you didn't have, you know, farm based cousins and city based cousins because then there's always the electric fence story. So, oh, that's true. Did you live out on the farm? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, it, it is true. I, I was very experienced on the farm. Yes. What do you so. think about that new, like, or at least it's new for me, but this regenerative, have you heard of regenerative farming? Not really. No, no. So it's basically like where, well, I, I should not be explaining it, but uh, it's a concept in farming and it like you'll use your chickens and then maybe some of the byproduct from the chickens will help feed these other animals. And sort of you have right. this like ecosystem. It's a regenerative ecosystem. Um, and so some of the people were talking about like taking that regenerative farming concept and applying it to like organizational structure. And so I was listening to a couple of people talk about that and it was actually pretty interesting regenerative organizations i'm gonna to have to look that one up my my background is actually organizational dynamics my undergrad is in organizational dynamics and my master's is actually in international finance so but my, my grandparents had a farm and that's what we always used to do is the chicken and cow manure always went back out in the field as fertilizer i mean you know back in the day i mean this, this synthetic chemical stuff didn't exist so I guess what's old is new again. Yeah, that's typically how it goes. That's the story of life, right? <laughs> it's regenerative in nature. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's look that one up. So you got you got a degree in, in international finance and then what else? Yes. Uh, the undergrad is organizational dynamics and then uh, in, in, in the master's is international finance. Did you do this like directly as you went through college or did you come back later after you got business experience? 
I basically came back after business experience because I had the undergrad for quite a while and then I was working as an executive for Hewlett Packard and one of the things that they did as part of their organizational thing is said, well, if you're going to be this level of an executive, I was a director level, you had to have a master's degree. So I went back and got a master's degree. And so you chose international finance. Were you doing yes. a lot of international work then? Yes. Uh, actually, for Hewlett Packard, I sort of pioneered uh, nearshoring for them uh, to Canada at the time. You know, this is back 1990-ish. So that, that was a big thing because the Canadian dollar was, you know, very weak at the time, still sort of is, but not like then. And so, yeah, we offshored a lot of stuff to Canada. This is long before India came along. That is so cool, man. Yeah, I was reading through your old bio and I was like, you're a, you're a man of the world, lots of traveling, international finance. Was that a really useful degree? It sounds like it would be. Yes, yes. Because, you know, it, the, the interesting thing, what a lot of people miss about the role of a CTO, uh, you know, it's not just about technology, but it's the conversion of technology into business opportunity. And that's really what I focus on for T-Systems. How do I take technology and turn it into competitive opportunity for our clients? That is a very succinct, clear way to put that. Yes. You've been doing this a while. <laughs> I've been doing it. You can tell by the gray hair. Yes. <laughs> it's been a number of years. So, you know, I got to talk with some, I think it was another CTO at, so there's two CTOs at T-Systems. Well, there, there's actually a number of us. You actually, I think, spoke to David Smith. He's part of operations for our North America cloud operations. So we have, actually inside T-Systems, we have, uh, as you found out, I think from David, we're part of the DTAG group. So, you know, our sister company is T-Mobile and uh, T-Mobile US, you got to meet, I think, Cody Sampson, who's their CIO working for uh, Neville Ray, who's the CTO there, great guys. Uh, and, and so with that, for T-Systems, we're really the business to business end of DTAG. And with that, Max Ahrens is our group CTO. And then there is a, a board, a CTO board for T-Systems. And on that board, I head up energy and manufacturing. There are uh, a CTO for basically cloud services. And this is at a global scale. Uh, you know, what uh, David is working at is for North America. So I actually work for T-Systems International in part of that board. So my focus is on, on uh, energy and uh, manufacturing. Do you notice as you get to be a part of that board and that international organization, are, are you noticing that, or do you have opportunities to coach some of the other people? Like, do you get to do that or yes. how does that work? Yes. And that's actually part of the idea behind the board structure it is, you know, we ha also have account CTOs because I also serve as the account CTO, for example, Shell and BP and, and the oil and gas is working with their CTOs and CIOs to, again, deliver competitive advantage in those spaces. I also, because I'm located here in Detroit, Michigan and have a big history, also help out the automotive guys in manufacturing. Yeah, I think we talked to, I think it's Magna is out there. I believe yes. that's- Yes, they're yeah. one of our customers, yes. Oh man, great I got company. to talk with their CTO. Yeah, great people, great company. Yep. We, we were talking a little bit about their talent pipeline, how they're interfacing with some colleges and mm -hmm. it was really cool. Yes. So you want to talk a little bit about industrial IoT and 5G. Correct. What's going on there, my friend? Oh, man, a lot, um, especially pre-COVID. COVID set this back a little bit. But actually, kind of interestingly enough, uh, you know, the COVID-19 event has told, kind of put a spin on this whole piece because, you know, obviously a lot of industry, you know, got the brakes put on. However, now what we're seeing is obviously, especially here in the United States, a lot of sovereign repatriation of business. And to be competitive or to actually do that repatriation, is taking technology such as 5G and industrial IoT. You know, some of the things that we offer is, you know, obviously going back to our wireless heritage with the T-Mobiles, because not only do we have T-Mobile here in the United States, is a T-Mobile Netherlands, Germany, we have the most, you know, around the industrialized world. So with that, we can provide the connectivity for, you know, edge compute infrastructure for industrial IoT, which allows us to help our clients do some really interesting things. Any projects that you are like particularly excited about? 
Yes, um, one of them that, that we've done, and, you know, the interesting thing, Jill, is when we really look at some of this stuff, it, you know, especially with, you know, 5G and industrial IoT, what a lot of companies miss out is that they look at it and say, all right, what's my return on investment or what's my goal out of doing this? And that's where I think they make a big mistake. Uh, one of the C CEOs that uh, I've worked with their company on, uh, you know, his people came to him and said, hey, look, boss, we want to do this big and, you know, IoT project, industrial-based IoT project. And he says, well, what am I going to get out of it? And they said, I don't know. And, you know, his response was, well, you know, you're asking for millions of dollars to do this project and you don't know what the outcome is. And they said, that's correct. It's what we don't know is more important than what we know. And I thought that was rather profound because at the end of the day, we came in and we did these things for them. And the result was amazing. They found out, you know, number one, that a lot of their product was being stolen and sold for scrap, which they didn't realize. You know, because when you have an enterprise that's globally based and they have a lot of materials, it's almost impossible to track all those. Well, with industrial IoT, 5G around the world and all these things, we were able to help them do that. So he was very excited at the end of the day <laughs> to say that he spent these, you know, few millions of dollars, which saved him tens of millions of dollars but also gave him new insight. And that's really what industrial IoT and 5G are about, is giving that you know, new level of insight, which was impossible before. So is 5G everywhere right now? Uh, we, well, uh, as part of the deal with uh, the government for the Sprint piece and everything, uh, T-Mobile, you know, promised the early rollout and it is, a, you know, obviously a competitive advantage for us. So a lot of the 5G components are out there. One of the bigger components where we're focusing on is 5G slicing. And ha have you heard of 5G slicing? No. Okay. Not a lot of people have, but what's really cool about 5G is in typical terms, you have your public radio network or what we call a RAN radio access network, or you have private radio access network. The private is very expensive. But with 5G, what we can do is we can virtualize a portion of that spectrum and then dedicate that to a business. And from that, we can localize cloud computing. So actually, you can have a pay pay for what you need model rather than dedicated radio. And you can localize a cloud solution uh, to that, which makes it very unique for manufacturing. That's pretty cool. It is. Okay. And it is. So uh, let's break this down a little bit. So you're, you're, you slice a spectrum, right? right? So that's where the slicing name comes yep. from. Correct. And that creates efficiencies over what me licensing a band of spectrum, like where's the Correct. efficiency created? Well, the piece is if you're not using that private spectrum, um, say you don't need it all the time or you need various amounts throughout your manufacturing day, uh, what's not being used can go back to the public side and be sold off there. So you don't have to buy dedicated radio equipment or anything like that, but yet you get the same advantage of having a private network at basically public prices. This is what's really unique about our solutions. And then to attach to that, we have uh, what we call Edge Air, which is an industrialized edge solution, which connects into that radio access network and allows us to very economically deploy industrial IoT solutions. Okay, so maybe I, you know, I'm from the SaaS world, so this is actually very fascinating for me because I don't have a lot of experience here. So these manufacturers, like in my in my world, I would I would never do that. Like that concept is kind of foreign to me. What are they needing? Like what are they when you say manufacturers are using this band, these bandwidths mm -hmm. or this slice, what are they doing with that? Like what is that to them? Well, let's take a refinery for an example. So in a refinery, one of the big situations you have is, is things, you know, obviously are very volatile, they explode. So there's a lot of regulation in deploying sensors and refineries. And one of the biggest problems for a long time in a refinery is deploying one sensor could be ten dollars to $25,000 to run a cable from, say, a central you know, computing location, small data center closet, out into the plant because all this has to go through conduit, has to be special cabling, 
all this. Well, what we can do now is we can take a sensor, put it out into the plant, it can use LTE to connect back to this private slice network, and then we can process all the information. So now, basically, you're installing sensors for pennies on the dollar. So you can do a lot of unique things, which you can never do before with technology. Dude, that is, I get it. That is so cool. Cool. Yeah. So you're telling me before, before this slicing, people would buy these like radio control systems and kind of make their own little networks and, and so they, they didn't have to run cables and now there's like a more cost effective way to do this. Well, well no, they, they would have to run cables now. Oh, okay. With LTE radio. Now here, here's the big thing to keep in mind. So what happened with the evolution of Wi-Fi is a lot of people started to use Wi-Fi sensors. There's a huge problem with Wi-Fi sensors because number one, they're on an open frequency. There's tons of easy kit out there to disrupt it. And when you have a manufacturing operation, first and foremost is the health and safety of the people working in that plant. And then second to that is obviously the environment. So, you know, I, you, you can walk and, and, you know, download schematics on the internet, you know, to easily build a Wi-Fi disruptive device where you can walk into a plant, push a button, and then put all the Wi-Fi devices offline. With LTE technology, number one, it's a license spectrum. It's a little bit harder to, to, to mess with. Uh, you know, number three, it's encrypted. So there's a lot of advantages from the safety side because one of the big things we look at in this solution is what I call is we want to avoid a skyfall event. So are you a James Bond fan? Of course. Okay. So you probably remember the movie Skyfall. What happened in Skyfall? I actually don't remember because there's like uh, five, there's like 500 James Bond movies. <laughs> I've, I've seen them all. I know there was a guy, there was an attractive uh, woman, there were gunshots. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, in Skyfall, Javier, the villain of this, you know, for, uh, former agent, um, you know, basically took control of errant IoT devices inside the, you know, headquarters and basically destroyed, what is it, MI5 or MI6, whatever they're calling it. And, and, and this is what we really strive to avoid first and foremost is to provide that level of security in an industrialized setting. Because we're not talking about event sensors here, if a door opens or closes or something like that. We're talking about pressures, pumps, you know, things that can go boom in the night. So this is what's real critical about these solutions we offer is they're industrially hardened and and they're also economical. That's pretty interesting too, because I haven't, I got out of the whole hacking game after I got 18 and it became like more of a problem. Or, <laughs> you know, you're kind of, as a kid, you're growing up, you're kind of playing with stuff. And for me, it was like, right, I'm 32. So it was like right when things were emerging, mm -hmm. right? And so I was playing with the, the networks and everything and trying to figure out what this was. But, um, you know, I never, I, I never thought about the difference in security of the Wi-Fi routers yes. versus the cell towers that are essentially transmitting the whole county's data. There's, I don't know what they are because I haven't experienced them or looked into them, but it, it definitely, I mean, our towers aren't getting taken down every day by 13-year-olds. And, <laughs> you know, when I was 13, we could take, take Wi-Fi's offline all day. Exactly. And you still can, even with Wi-Fi 6. I mean, it's, it's, it's gotten better. However, you know, we have probably talked for an entire day on the whole Wi-Fi versus, you know, LTE debate. And, you know, naturally me working for a carrier or a carrier-based organization, I'm leaning towards LTE. But the one thing is, is if you just pile up the pros and cons from an industrial setting, LTE clearly wins in, the, you know, this case. And especially because what we can also do with 5G is we can regionalize spectrum and, and resell spectrum on a regional basis. We can't really do that under 4G. So 5G gives us a lot of ability to add a lot more sensors, uh, to secure them, uh, you know, far better than we could in the past. And so this is what's so exciting about this. And then also, uh, because 5G has massive MIMO and beam shaping, we can go into a refinery, we can put these sensors in a high ferrous environment and, and not have the same issues we have with Wi-Fi or 4G because with the evolving 5G technology, we can bounce signals off pipes and things like that to cover the whole plant in a far more effective manner. 
So are you mainly focused on, it sounds like you're mainly focused on infrastructure, but my next question is, do you also get into like predictive analytics and things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've got a great story for you. So we, we were asked to come in by a um, uh, refinery operator. So in, in the oil and gas field, you have downstream, midstream and upstream, you know, downstream produces, you know, uh, basically the gas and sells it and that kind of stuff. Midstream, you know, does the trading. Upstream extracts it from the ground. So in the downstream scenario, this downstream refinery operator called us in and, and you know, their chief operating officer goes, look, Joe, we've cut costs as much as we can over, could over the past five years. We now need to be more competitive and we feel industrial IoT will allow us to do that. So they actually had one of our competitors in there earlier, and number one, they could not throughput the amount of data they needed. Because here's the other challenge, Joe, of industrial uh, IoT, is you know, what we're looking at is we're not looking at event-based event data. In other words, you know, like with Laura or something, when we open or close a door, that's an event. It sends a little packet door open, here's the time, door closed. For predictive analytics, we have to stream vast amounts of data, and we have to do it 24 by 7. And this is the other place where the slice network comes in, is it's a cost-effective solution for me to move a bunch of data. So one of the things that we did is we took a $50 acoustic sensor, epoxied it to basically a 25-year-old pump, and we were able to show you know, this, this chief operating officer, how we could do some really crazy things because we took this acoustic data at 48 kilohertz that we were sending over LTE. We processed it in some interesting math from, that actually came out of DOD work for submarine propellers because what's a pump but a big impeller, right? So we were able to, number one, look at the cavitation of this pump. We were able to look at the performance of the impellers of this pump. Uh, we were able to understand the fluid that this pump was handling. So kind of back to my original piece, we were able to discover things that we weren't even looking for out of a $50 sensor, which would never have been possible in the old days because you had to spend ten to 25000 just to wire this thing in. Whoa, that is actually really cool. It makes for a, a an impressive customer presentation. <laughs> it does. It does. It, it actually, and we, we have um, we actually have these set up in our innovation center where we have a pump and we have these various various sensors, as I just mentioned, and we can put the pump into a certain state and, and we can help our clients visualize this. Because then what you do is you expand this out with vibration sensors and, and obviously other sensors and start adding in artificial intelligence. So even if we go back, you know, in the same vein, you know, with industrial IoT, video is, is another uh, important aspect of industrial IoT because video cameras are super cheap and you get a ton of information from them. You know, so for example, if you take your existing security system in a plant, you know, so for example, like in the Middle East, basically they mandated that all the critical infrastructure at the plant be monitored by a camera. And so, you know, what we suggested is take that data from all those security cameras, which the company was seeing as a liability, and just let an AI and algorithm soar through it and see what it discovers. And it's literally amazing, you know, because here you have all this data you think is liability, the security footage, which really turned out to be a competitive advantage. That's pretty cool. You could like spend uh, thousands of dollars engineering a special gauge or you could just point a camera at the gauge. <laughs> exactly, it, it, exactly. And, and there, there, are, there are tons, you know, for example, as we look at the, the COVID situation, you know, so a lot of people are looking at, you know, uh, thermal cameras for uh, temperature sensing and things like that. We're actually looking at what about micro flushing, you know, because as you and I are talking, you know, as our body dynamics change, you know, we're blushing in, you know, just a matter of a split second, with every heartbeat. So if we watch with enough frame rate, we can actually see that. And we can also monitor body conditions that, you know, you know, for example, your heart rate, you know, potential blood pressure conditions. We can know all kinds of things from that video. I want a little HUD heads up display <laughs> yeah. that shows like my current mood. <laughs> 
my heart rate. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, there are several apps out there for the iPad that actually do this. And they, right. they monitor. Yeah, they'll tell you your heart rate and a bunch of other stuff about you just from utilizing micro flushing in the cameras because it just looks at the hue of your skin you know, at a very fast rate. So, so there are tons, this is enabling tons of, of fascinating technologies to, to be developed because really the cost or, or, you know, the challenge has always been, how do you move this massive amount of data to make value out of it? You know, because this is the one thing as you talk about predictive analytics, you need for predictive analytics to really work. You know, I see a lot of, um, a lot of my clients, you know, they go to, you know, their his data historian, you know, their pie historian, and, and they take very low frequency data and they attempt to utilize artificial intelligence and algorithms to predict the future. The problem is with coarse data, you get coarse prediction. To get detailed prediction, especially, you know, seven to 11 days into the future, you need high frequency data. And we work quite a bit with National Instruments down in Austin uh, to utilize a lot of their sensors and software to, to create these predictive analytic systems for industry. So how, how connected are you? How close are you to the teams that are getting to like actually make this technology? Well, you're looking at the guy that dreams it up. So uh, I'm the I'm the grandfather of basically the edge computing for T system, the, the edge air offering, as well as basically most of these um, you know uh, industrial IoT solutions. Because one of the things you know, uh, again, the viewers may be aware of it, if they're in manufacturing is ISA 95. This was a standard created in 1995 and I think last updated 2003. That kind of predicates how IT or you know really OT, because when we're talking about plants, we're talking operational technology. So on one side, you have operational technology, OT. On the other side, you have IT. So the question for the past couple decades is how do you bridge this? And again, we could talk quite a bit about this, but in the simple aspect to, to really get business value out of it, you have to get real-time OT data into the IT side of the house, but yet you need to do it securely. And that's really one of the big things that we're working on is really bringing these pieces together. Because if I fall back to the slice model, because remember one side's public, one side's private. So on the public side, I can do track and trace to trucks or trains coming into my refinery. And on the private side, I can do operations in the refinery. So I can take my logistics data from the public side run it through a bunch of algorithms, you know, inside the edge, and I can tune my manufacturing process to match the arrival of trucks, trains, and all that kind of stuff. So we can really increase the efficiency because as I was sharing with the uh, pump example, in the petrochem business, there's a process called tolling. You know, one day they may run one chemical, the next day they may run another, and the pump doesn't know what chemical it's running. It doesn't know the specific gravity. It doesn't know the point of shear or cavitation for that fluid. Well, with that $50 sensor, I can now say go from 80% productivity on that pump to near 100% productivity because I know when it's cavitating. I also know how that impeller of that pump is going to work with the fluid it's handling. So again, I've done this for all for basically $50. And so then you provide these interfaces to them and train them. How does Correct. the training process go? Like how do you train these people that previously didn't have this technology to now interface and make decisions and learn from this new technology? And that's a great question. There's because really what we see, there's really two camps. There's one camp that you know asks us to help with that. And there's another camp that says, hey, we want you guys just to be the plumbers. And, and we're good with both camps. Um, you know, for example, with the, the one with the $50 sensor and the pump, th their challenge to us was to be the plumbers, move a bunch of data, and their data scientists are making value of that at a higher level. Uh, however, we also work with many different companies. Um, you know, we oh, it must have been about six, eight months ago, into end of last year, we signed a deal with Siemens for MindSphere. So we integrate with MindSphere and we integrate with a lot of these, you know, SCADA packages out there to create this value. So basically, you know, they provide the top level service, analytic service, and then we provide the data connectivity. 
so from from our conversation, I feel like a lot of the the projects are almost like retrofits. Like you have an existing refinery, it doesn't yes. have sensors. We're putting any sensors. How are you dealing with the like the other side of the stream of business? Are you working with manufacturers to have them put in like sensors that will interface with your technology? How do you get the the business of the people who are putting sensors and new equipment today? Well, with that. Again, it's providing the stable pipeline uh, for that. Because again, if we look at automotive manufacturing because of their changeover processes and manufacturing lines and things like that, they're far more advanced than say the refining business. Because when you build a refinery, and a lot of the refineries, especially in Europe, you know, some of them date back to World War II. I mean, some of the pumps are older oh, wow. than I am. And, and so this is the thing to think about in that context is in a lot of manufacturing, the machines are actually very old because they're rather simple machines. And, and so this gives an easy way to retrofit them and, and, and you know, obtain this industry 4.0 value out of an existing machine. Now, when we start looking at some of the more advanced pieces, again, they have these built in uh, you know, to the equipment today. And so we simply interface with them, obviously, through direct LT and we process it on the edge, just like we would the retrofit, but, you know, the sensors are integrated. Oh, that's pretty cool. Because, yeah, like with cell phones, right, you have the manufacturer of the cell phone, but then they they build it so that it'll work on, you know, the networks. Correct. Right, different Correct. networks. When do you think like consumers will, when will I be able to have 5G in my iPhone? Do you, are you familiar with that? Yeah, well, Samsung, Samsung, I believe has already released a 5G capable phone. Uh, and I think Apple in their next version is, is going to release 5G capable, but that's not where the excitement of 5G really comes from. It's really in the industrialization, the sensors and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, your YouTube videos or Netflix is going to stream, you know, a little bit faster and a little bit less, you know, flickering. But again, the exciting part I think people miss is 5G is going to enable all the stuff we were just talking about. And so like sensor data that would travel on. So is this 5G slicing, is that is the slicing only available in 5G? Yes. There's no 4G slicing? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, what, uh, you know, one of the big differences between 4G and 5G is they virtualized a lot of the functionality of 4G into 5G. So that's how we can split this off. So basically think of it as uh, running a bunch of virtual machines or Kubernetes instances or you know containers um, that split that segment off. And so that's what 5G gives us. So rather than buying dedicated hardware, it, you know the functionality is virtualized. It's one of the big pieces. And that's what allows us to do this. So what are you most excited about today? We know we got the 5G stuff. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of cool projects with the, with the refineries, but what's like the thing that is getting you up out of bed in the morning? Uh, basically, every day we sort of discover something new that we can do with this technology. And that's, that's to me what's really exciting. So, you know, before COVID came along, I wasn't messing around with micro flushing and, and now I am. Um, a lot in the video detection arena, obviously, is coming up. So every day I get to discover something new, and that's what's really cool. And, and getting to work with a lot of our larger customers in energy and manufacturing, I get to see all these different problems and challenges, and that's what gets me up in the morning is, is helping solve these problems. Have you, have you thought a lot about, like, the Starlink and the different things that, like, you know, Musk mm -hmm. and some other companies are doing, how is that going to impact this, this world? Well, I think anything that adds to communication is a good thing. You know, from the aspect of we're going to be creating more and more data. And I mean, it's sort of an old cliche about this, but that, you know, as I mentioned early on, Predictive analytics, especially good predictive analytics, depends on lots of data. So the more data that we can get, the, the better off we are. And obviously there's you know, some interesting applications for Starlink because 
Um, you know, one of the challenges I was given is uh, autonomous vehicles in the Congo. So yeah, you don't have too many cell towers in the Congo, you know, in the deep jungle of the Congo. So that's something where potentially, you know, something like Starlink or, you know, non-terrestrial based, you know, would, you know, work out or be a use. <laughs> you put a bunch of wireless sensors inside of the snakes. Yeah. Well, well, actually, around. actually, the, actually, the mining vehicles. So a lot of the mining operations now are are autonomous, and a lot of the ships are now autonomous. And and so you know, because you really think about it, you, we 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 kind of went about this a little bit the wrong way with autonomous cars, because there's a whole bunch of them packed together. Uh, you know, so it makes it far more difficult than you throw us humans in there. But now, you know, our planes for many years have been flown on autopilot. So now our ships are being sailed on autopilot. And so trains operated like that, mining equipment. So the, the autonomous arena is really growing a lot faster than what people think. And this is one of the things that they miss about the bleed over into, you know, the automotive industry of autonomous driving. So it's really us humans that are sort of a little bit getting in the way of autonomous driving because we're so erratic. But. Yeah, I was, I was having a couple conversations, but I've got a few friends in Australia that do mm -hmm. like big mining, yep. like ore, ore mm -hmm. mining. So they've got the, um, you know, like hundreds of acres and they've yep. got the vehicles that are 50 feet tall yep. and giant wheels. Those are the ones I'm and, talking about. Yeah. And he was telling me, he's like, dude, they're autonomous. Yes. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they're mostly, they're dry because those are private lands, first of all. So you don't even yep. have to worry about uh, being Correct. on public roads and, and autonomy. And I was like, that's that's he goes yeah he goes the first few times you see one of these like skyscraper <laughs> things moving and there's moving. no one no inside one of it no one yeah he's like it's a little bit odd but you get used to it yeah exactly and, and you know they you know because again you don't need people they can run 24 7 you know and, and you know you kind of extrapolate that out in, in in different perspectives to the industry as a whole that this technology is going to allow and one of the things that's, that's become very clear in artificial and technology Artificial, sorry, artificial intelligence is that the more data we have, the smarter the intelligence becomes. And so we can take learnings, say, from these, you know, mining vehicles and then adapt the algorithms, refine them into the, you know, consumer automobile. So that's one of the things that are moving so fast. So... Has anyone, like I know Musk is putting up Starlink, but have, has any of the other major carriers like announced any satellite projects to compete or be similar to them? Not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, Musk has a sort of a leg up because he's got SpaceX. So he's got the yeah. transport into, into low Earth orbit. So that's kind of a no brainer. And, and the piece is, is he can, and I don't know if he's doing it, but I would make the assumption that he's, you know, launching Starlink maybe as ballast for commercial payloads or something like that since they're, they're Leo-based, you know, devices. So it becomes very economic for him where if we as DTAG or AT&T, you know, went out and hired Musk to put these into orbit, I mean, obviously there would be a different, you know, economic model. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting, I'm not saying anything. It might be cool to see some magenta satellites. <laughs> I, I, you know what, Tim, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm volunteering to head up that program. You know, we'll have yeah. space, we'll have a magenta space command. I'm in with you on that one, Joel. We just need to reserve a band for stargazers. You know, like I, I want to go out to the mountains and look up in the sky and be able to like, at least have like a band, like, you know, I saw the the renderings of the net essentially that they're right. putting around the earth. And I and I realize on a scale there's a lot of space in between them. But um, you know, there is something to be said where I go out now and look in the sky and I see, you know, more airplanes and satellites. I think I'm seeing a bunch of stars, and then I pull my <laughs> phone app up. Yes, and I'm like, exactly. oh my goodness, I'm seeing mostly satellites, but then you get the uh you see like the Milky Way or something, yeah. something beautiful. And you're just like, you get to travel around the world a lot. So you've yes. gotten to see the star, uh, the sky in many different shapes, right? Yes. Both the Northern and Southern hemispheres. And, and actually it's sort of one of my hobbies is uh, astrophotography. So yes, I, I mean, you're, you're well-educated on, there's a lot of complaints in the community about the Starlink system, because obviously, you know, if you're an astrophotographer, there's going to be an impact on this because, you know, wide field astrophotography. But 
You know, that sometimes there's, you know, obviously give and take if you want this. And, and, and again, this is going to help, you know, Musk from an autonomous driving perspective, because, you know, one of the things he's clearly moving into is, is commercial vehicles and they need connectivity. You know, because this is one of the big challenges folks don't realize. If you take like uh, a Tesla with, say, 250,000 vehicles on the road or whatever small number, you take a General Motors or a Ford, um, it's easy to get connectivity for 250,000 but it's hard to get connectivity for 5 million vehicles. And so this, this is, again, it's, it's interesting to watch how Elon plays the, the corner cases to fill in the puzzle, if you will, of all the different pieces, you know. So he's in the autonomous driving business. Now he's putting up satellites to control his own connectivity into these vehicles. And so yeah, it's, Elon's an interesting character. I know he's a cool person to follow and it's I like how he's pretty human as far as like his interactions on Twitter like he is it's just kind of it's cool to see somebody when they're successful like be very mm -hmm. themselves mm -hmm. uh whether because I mean there's not this air of perfection it's just like dude this is who I am this is how I act this is how I behave this is what I do and it's it's just nice to to kind of see and today I think in about an hour we're having our yes. uh, our big launch. About an hour. Yes, I'm ex I'm excited to see that. I'm kind of glad they pushed it off. So, uh, I'm you know obviously being a child of the '60s, watching Man First Step on the Moon, you know it's exciting to see us take those those steps back. However, you know back to Musk. You do do you realize why he's so? What, what do you? Let me ask you this, maybe in different terms. Why do you think he's so successful? Uh, his upbringing. I mean, I. I've I've been a fan of his story. I read his biography and mm -hmm. I've been following him for a while. Um, his resilience at a young age. I mean, I I identify with a lot of those things. I had you know, got hit by a car when I was young. Had to learn how to walk again, and Ooh. that taught me more about life than anything mm -hmm. um, around the ages of thirteen, fourteen, and then uh, just like difficulties and adversity, and then deciding to make a conscious effort to overcome them. I think that is like at his core or shaped his character. Well, the interesting thing I find, because at the onset of this discussion, one of the things we talked about is I shared the story of the CEO and his folks approaching him about doing a pilot with industrial IoT. And they said, we don't know what we're going to find. That's, that's the thing I personally think about Musk it is he's willing to invest, to explore, to find something he doesn't know is there. You know, for example, with yeah. the ventilators, I mean, I thought it just absolutely fascinating. They were able to take Tesla car parts and build the ventilator. And he didn't, you know, let the preconceived notions of the medical world, you know, stop him. And, and this is this is to me what excites me about Elon is him looking at it that way. Because to, to share a little bit of an interesting story, obviously in the oil and gas field, we do deal with a lot of subsurface data. Um, you know, companies looking for oil, right? Well, at least when oil was a little bit more per gallon than it is now. Uh, I, was in, I was in a very high level meeting one time and, and, and this is going back about a decade ago. And they kept all their uh, subsurface seismic data on tapes. And I, I looked at them and I mentioned, I said, why are you keeping this on tape? Why don't you put, put it on disk? And they said, Joe, it's really expensive to do that. And, and we've already ran all the algorithms against it that we could to look for oil and gas. I turned and looked at, you know, Adam and said, have you looked for the Ark of the Lost Covenant? And these five gentlemen just looked at me, you know, literally like I had a third eye. Uh, however, what I explained to them is, yes, you've looked for oil and gas, but you, you have this massive view into three miles deep into the Earth's surface. Why don't you let an AI and algorithm look for something else that you've totally, because maybe your, your business is no longer oil and gas, maybe it's mining, maybe it's something else. You know, we, I think, just allow ourselves to be bound by, uh, you know, preconceived conceptions. And I think that's where Musk throws those away and says, everything I approach is an empty slate. I'll take it a step farther and I'll say it's a trend of traits I see in successful people. Yes. They tend like in, in like the, in the most like realistic way, you know, you're always, I'm, I'm on a path of self-discovery just that's me. And that's my story. I'm always trying to figure out myself and, you know, figure out, you know, why I'm weird or why I'm different or why I see things differently. Um, and one of the things I found is that like, I have some 
filter on the way I see things that just happens to be different. I'm not great at articulating it, but I just see them in, in like very simple concepts. And I found that that ability to see things simply and clearly is a, is a su successful trait yes. that I've seen across people. Yeah, because that's why I'm fascinated with, with the Google's, you know, 10x thinking and things like that. Uh, you know, because that's one of the reasons I, you know, got the uh, undergrad in organizational dynamics is everything we do is really about, you know, us as a person, you know, and it's not about the technology. We shape the technology. A lot of people think the technology shapes us, but we really shape the technology. And that's where I'm also a big Marshall McLuhan fan, too. I haven't heard know, of this. So who's this person? Oh, you've got, oh, well, you're a youngster and only 32. Marshall McLuhan, um, where, where the medium is the message, you know, where the means of communication really shape the message. And, oh, uh, I've heard those he things. Thought, yep. He, he, Canadian, yeah, he was a Canadian professor, great guy. Uh, as far as that, you know, so, uh, you know, up there with Clayton Christensen, who unfortunately just recently passed away, but really did some great work in, in basically, you know, how people think about things, receive messages and, and that kind of stuff through media, you know, various mediums, if you will. Yeah, I actually um, watched a bunch of Clayton's TED Talks. Uh, yes, he's dude, good. Brilliant guy. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, okay. Jobs to be done. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm excited. I want to talk a little bit more about astral photography. And the reason why is okay. my wife and I were just thinking about our next vacation. I've been researching places to go, places where you, they're outside the city. You're not allowed to use white lights at night. You have to use red lights. They're like these little communities and they, they're very specific about how to use your light because people are going mm -hmm. out there to see the stars. Right. What are your recommendations on a couple areas that are, that are good visits? Now, where are you located again? I'm in Florida, but we can okay. travel. Uh, yeah, there, there's, 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 uh, there's a number of dark sky uh, places in Florida. Actually, there's a community not far from Orlando that is dedicated to um, hobby astronomers. You know, they, they build houses and lights are banned around there and people build big telescopes. Um, if you get out California way, you can go up to, just before you get to the top of Pulamar Mountain, where obviously the Pulamar Observatory is, um, a lot of people go up there because, you know, in, in uh, San Diego and that, they have the light regulations, so it's really great up there. I've been up there before. Uh, the Phoenix area is great. You get up around Sedona, beautiful area, so yeah. Those are, I'm making notes. And so, you know, my yeah, brother- he, my brother is a physician and he recently got into night photography. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's been sharing pictures. He's done some like long exposures and mm -hmm. you can kind of see the rotation right. of the stars. And the, that is some trippy stuff. Yes. It's, it's, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple thing, but it is so cool to go out on a clear night and look at the stars and actually watch how they're rotating imperfectly. Mm -hmm. It feels as far as the horizon goes, how, how they rotate. And sure. it's just, uh, it, it's a, you know, for me, I found it a good exercise to ground myself when like I'm searching for direction or I feel I'm mm -hmm. at a point where I'm lost in life. Uh, a trip out to nothingness to look at the stars seems to have some answers. Yes, it does. Tell me a little bit about the shapes behind you on your posters. You've got some geometric re repetitive patterns going on. Those are what I would call second generation uh, Escher drawings mm. from MC Escher. So I spend a lot of time actually in The Hague in the Netherlands. Actually, the Netherlands over the past 20 years has sort of been my second home. So um, my adopted favorite color is orange now. Uh, however, what's really cool, and if you know any of your listeners get out to The Hague, there's the M.C. Escher Museum. And what they do is they allow you, unlike most museums, to take photographs of Escher's work. And so over a weekend where I was staying in The Hague, I actually took a bunch of, because photography is another one of my hobbies, I have a lot of hobbies. Uh, I actually went in there and they allowed me to set up my gear and photograph the original Escher drawings that are on display. And that's what's actually behind me. Because because I just love the twisted nature of MC Escher of, you know, basically the way he takes your perspective and distorts it 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And especially for yes. the time, it was like unbelievable. Exactly. You know, to me, you know, I come in here every morning and look at them and, you know, I love the ants and the fish and, you know, you know, so the Mobius shapes and, you know, so I highly recommend his, his museum there in, in the Hague. How do you think our society is doing? Let's talk some abstract fun stuff. Like, how do you think our society is doing as far as like culture and getting space and deep thinking? Do you think we're overworked? Do you think we're finding balance? Like, where do you think we are in, our, in the maturity of ourselves as a people? Wow, that's a, that's a hard question. I think, I think it's, I think it's a tiered question. I think, you know, again, having organizational dynamics, you know, as a background, I've written a number of books. One of them is the Quincy Effect, uh, where I talk about it because because everybody's at a little bit different place on the Maslow on Maslow's ladder, if you will. And this is one of the things when you're building a team, working together as a community, when you have people that are seeking safety. And then you have people that are, you know, traveling to enlightenment, I, the, the two don't mesh, you know, in other words, the two can't see together. And I think that's in our society today, a lot of what we're, we're looking at. I think there's a lot of dynamics that have changed in the socioeconomic profile that has created this mass separation. I don't believe it's the fact because people like Gates or Zuckerberg have so much money and the whole Pareto's 80-20 thing so much with, you know, those guys being so far in extreme, just use them as an example. But I do think that it is that dynamic in our society of we're spreading out Maslow's ladder quite a bit in you know, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of this uh, political consternation that we have over the past, you know, four years. I think that's put brilliantly too, because I've been aware of, you know, the hierarchy of needs and, mm -hmm. but the way you described it, you're, you're right. There were, uh, there's different collections of people at different stages right. and, and development. And I think it's amazing that we all work together. And then I also see, the need for more nuanced thinking versus one rule applies to everything. I think, mm -hmm. and that's what got me thinking through this whole COVID thing about decentralization of core services and core services being housing, food, energy. Um, do you think that we're going to see decentralization of those things? Are they already decentralized and I just yes. don't know it? Well, I, I think you're, to, in a certain way, yes, I believe you're correct. So, for example, 3D printing is another one of my hobbies. I have a lot of hobbies. And that is going to lead to a vast change in the way we do things. Um, because we can decentralize the production of goods with 3D printing, you know, really easily. And so, yes, I think you, you'll see some of that decentralization from that effect. However, the, the one piece is, is, you know, one of the questions I sit on, I do a lot of the panel discussions at conferences, well, at least pre-COVID I did. And one of the big questions I was always getting for quite a while is how do I see AI affecting, you know, basically the working population? You know, because Musk puts up Starlink, you know, autonomous trucks, you know, look at the post office employs 250,000 drivers alone. You know, then you take all the commercial truck drivers. What are all these people going to do? In the pieces, you know, you look at people like Andrew Yang says, okay, we need this, this minimum basic income. That's fine. You're feeding those people. But what are they doing for value? Because more important to me is the value I create rather than the paycheck I get. The paycheck's nice, but if I don't have that value in my heart, um, you know, I, I'm missing part of me as a person. And I think that's the biggest challenge we're looking at, not economically, but that social fulfillment, that f fulfillment of value. Yeah, that need to feel productive. Useful. Yeah, exactly. Productive. Useful, productive, correct. I mean, it affects me on a day to day basis when I have down days, you know, and that affects me. It's like, I did mm -hmm. not achieve my potential today. This is a problem. It's completely exactly. not connected to pay. Obviously there's a Maslow hierarchy. The, the needs right. come into exactly. place, right? But when basic needs are met, you know, it's, I think it's going to be super important as an educate. I think education is going to be massively important. Like how do we, we already have the infrastructure. We have K through 12, but like, how mm -hmm. do we leverage our existing infrastructure to teach people 
or at least make them aware of these schools of thought, these education, like of, of how to feel valuable of how to find a pursuit of something worth doing. Um, I think we need like that. I don't think that's being taught in K through 12. I don't think it's being taught in middle school, but I think it should be taught. Like we should at least say, Hey, this is, you know, we should, we should have like, you know, it's amazing to me. I watch Ray Dalio. Um, Mm -hmm. I watch his YouTube video of -hmm. how the economy works in 30 minutes. Exactly. Animated, beautifully explained, a hundred percent understood, very clear and introduced you into principle based, you know, concepts too. And it's like, how is that not something we make people watch every month and third, fourth, fifth grade, you know what I'm saying? Like, because watching it once isn't enough. I have recurring events in my calendar that say, go back and watch Ray Dalio's. And I do that on an annual basis. Yes. I have Elon Musk in my phone on a quarterly basis saying, go revisit Think First Principles. And what I'm finding as I'm getting older, and I'm really obsessed with this journey of life because I'm, I'm just, I'm enjoying it, is that it's less about, like I'll use new information to keep me excited. Right. I need to hold on to the things that are good and let them mean more things as times pass. So for example, as my, for my career as an engineer, everything is an object that was a sentence that meant something right. new to me every year as I gained knowledge. Now I'm doing that same thing. I'm saying, okay, what is my thing in business or in thought? And so I was like, all right, I'll take Elon Musk concepts of first principles and I'll, re- I'll remember to revisit that every quarter. Um, so it means something different. I grow a deeper understanding of it. And so I've kind of created this portfolio of my knowledge where I have these uh, things that I constantly, I enjoy. So I keep them repetitive in my schedule. And that, that's very interesting because again, works like you're doing, uh, Tim Ferriss, because I, you know, I love the stuff you do because you're, you're very much, I, I consider you the, the Tim Ferriss of the CTO work because <laughs> you just, you, I, I mean, when, when you talk with someone, it's very smooth and it's the same way Ferris comes off and he pulls a lot of stuff out just as you pull a lot of stuff out in this case. You know, so when we talk about, you know, Ray Dalio, which, which that dude's just a savant when it comes to economics. He's, I, you know, the, the original Dune movie, I've watched that like 30 times and I'm not a person to rewatch it because I've learned something new. Ray Dalio is the same way. Just like you said, you can listen to him 10 times and you'll walk away with something new 10 times. But, you know, that's where I'm excited about what guys like yourself and Ferris are doing, because, again, you're putting this stuff out there and, and you're also sort of, I think, bridging the gap between people like myself in the broader audience. Um, you know, because, again, you put me up somewhere. I do a lot of public speaking. I can get a little bit, you know, savantish myself and, you know, hey, look at this cool thing way over here. But I think it, then it takes perspective like you're pulling in here and Ferris does to, you know, here's the bigger humanistic picture, if you will, because that's really what counts is, is the humanistic picture, not so much the technology. Oh, yeah, I became, I became really fascinated with uh, this question, what are the humans building? It came to me like one day on a run and I was thinking, okay, I'm talking to these different people. This person's in oil and gas. This person's healthcare. My, my brother and stepmom are in healthcare. My dad was in technology and I'm sort of looking at now I own a business. And so I have a sales team and I have production teams and, and I'm kind of seeing, and then I'm looking at, you know, ants work and build a mound. And if you walked up to the individual ant, you would say, I'm doing my own free will and I'm just enjoying life, but clearly (laughs) they're building something bigger than themselves. And so I was thinking, you know, uh, or maybe I heard it from a thought experiment. Like if I'm standing on Mars looking at Earth, what are the humans building? Right. And, and the, the reason being is because I heard this really smart person say, you know, find out what's going to happen. And then you say it's going to happen. And that's how you look smart. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, where, where is the world uh, headed? And what are, what are we doing? And what are we building? And then I've actually found like having these conversations is the thing in life I enjoy most. I, I'm, I'm sad when I don't get to do podcasts. Like I like talking to people like you, you've got uh, your expert level knowledge in multiple areas, extremely accomplished and someone with a wealth of experience. And I, if I had a dream, Joe, 
it would be waking up and talking to the brightest people in the world every day. And I think I'm living that dream. And yeah, you are. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it, keep it up, Joel. We need it, it. Thank you. And thank you for the compliment. Is there anything that uh, we definitely want to point some people uh, how, how do we get um, business for you? Like, what's the call to action? Is there some way we can direct the right people to you? Well, basically, if you're interested in, you know, any of the things that I shared today, please reach out to me via LinkedIn, or I'm sure that uh, probably Aaron will give you some contact information. But I'm, uh, you know, also your listeners should feel free to, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. I think as you saw, I, I blog quite a bit. I do a lot of posts about this. Um, and so because I'm also very passionate about this interaction too. So they can reach me through LinkedIn. It's probably the best way and keep in touch. Yeah, we'll definitely put you on as like a recurring guest because uh, I really enjoy the conversation. I like you a lot. And I, I love that uh, you were interested in talking about like higher level things too. You know, mm -hmm. some people will just give you the media shutdown and avoid the question and other people are interested in talking about it, you know? Maybe we could do one on quantum computing because I'm also working on, you know, our quantum strategy because that you were asking earlier, that is another thing that gets me up in the morning is quantum computing because I am utterly fascinated by the possibilities. Oh, great. Okay. So we're actually just talking right now. There's a good episode with Rob, Robert Suter. I don't know if it goes by Rob or Robert, but he's the head of quantum computing over at IBM. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's a past episode, but I really enjoyed that conversation. So we were just talking to his PR people about having him on again. So maybe we'll do like a, a back to back uh, episode, do like quantum week or something and have Robert come on, have some conversations. We'll give you like early edit access to it so you can listen to it right away. Okay. And then you and I can come back and like sort of like have some conversations from that and, and discuss it. And then I'll introduce you to Robert if you'd like, if you don't already Perfect. know him, but he's a, he's a cool dude. Now, I'd be, I can't remember the gentleman's name. I deal with, because uh, we do a lot with IBM and their Q systems, but the gentleman I deal with is out of Zurich, obviously, because of the, the European thing. So, um, yes, that would be fascinating because the way, what my, um, you know, my turn on quantum computing is business application, is quantum refactoring, and how will businesses use quantum computing, make value out of it, not so much you know, how do you invent a quantum computer or that kind of stuff? So that's the angle I'm looking at it from. Well, yeah, that's, so, that's I mean, actually, a good addition. I like that phrase too, quantum refactoring. That's a cool, <laughs> that's a cool, uh, something I haven't heard before. Is that out? Is that a phrase that's common out there? Yes. Yes. Okay. Maybe because traditional binary programs or an algorithms won't work in um, a quantum state because you know quantum computing is a probabilistic computing mechanism so you're looking for probable uh, outcomes where with binary computing you have intrinsic outcomes in other words two plus two is always four where in quantum computing you don't ask what is two plus two you ask for a range of answers and the range of answers is given with a probability assigned to each one and so to be able to do that, you have to refactor, you know, existing applications and algorithms to work in a probabilistic manner. It feels like how our brains work. A lot of people think our brains are actually quantum mechanisms. So that, that, that could be a podcast in itself. <laughs> We'd have to get some neuro guys on to really delve deep into that. But that's, that's one of the things uh, that they're thinking actually is consciousness is quantum driven. And, and where are you located? Uh, when I'm not on an airplane, which I haven't been because of COVID, I live about two hours north of Detroit, Michigan. Two hours north of Detroit. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we've been thinking about doing some more like in-person stuff too for the podcast. Uh, so, you know, avoid the, it's just a different quality of conversation yes. in person. Yes. You know that. Yep. So we'll keep you on the list for, for some okay. of that. But yeah, I definitely, I definitely like the idea of, of adding you as a recurring guest to talk about these, these topics. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it myself, and I enjoyed finally meeting you. I've been a long-time listener for many years, so. Oh, you have? Yes, I've been a long-time listener. That is great. Thank you. I so, appreciate I mean, it. Like I say, you're right up there with Tim Ferriss. I like yourself, Tim Ferriss, and, and uh, you know, a few others, but you guys are the ones I really listen to because, again, you, you both kind of tease out. You, you know, it, we, we didn't spend the past hour just talking about technology. We, we talked about life and the application of it, and I think that's what's important. 
Well, if you and I, when we have lunch, because at some point we will, but if, if, we, if we did, we would not sit there and hammer one line of, of questioning the entire time and just leave. Like, I don't think that like ever really happens. No. Maybe a real estate transaction. <laughs> 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 but, um, but you just, it's like, a, it's, a, it's part of the human thing. It's like, we get to know each other. Yes. We get to know how we think. And, and then uh, that opens up probabilities for the future. It's like, okay, I really got along with this person. Let's definitely have them back on and build that relationship. And then I look back at my life and I'm like, okay, I get to spend my time building relationships with people who are, who are incredibly brilliant. And that's got to be a cool thing, Joe. Yes. Hey, it speaking is. of it's incredibly brilliant, you, I think you know another one of my friends, Eddie Satterley. Dude, you know Eddie? <laughs> Uh, who doesn't know Eddie? Come on. That guy, he was a Jake. We got to put on the production notes to have him back. He was doing a startup um, at the time, but yeah. How, how well do you know him? Uh, we, when I was at HP, we, we did uh, a number of things together and, and, and yeah, there's some interesting stories yeah, with Eddie. So yeah, he's, he's a character. I, I keep, I keep in contact with him. Yeah. You seem like a guy that like, if I go out and visit him in person, I would get better stories than he would share. You would. You would. <laughs> I can guarantee you Eddie has far better, I don't know if I want to call it technological stories, but he's got far better stories than I got when it comes to stories. Yes. Like that. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. Oh, thanks for bringing him up. We got to, I got to catch, you know, what I need to do a better job of having people on multiple times. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause that's some of the things like I listen to some of the Joe Rogan podcasts, you know, yes. yeah. and, and when, and once they build that relationship and the person's been on a couple of times, then you just get that. That's actually one of our goals for this year that we've been working on is to, um, to do that. Sounds awesome. good with me, Joe. All right. So I'll have uh, Jake and Chloe loop back with you and Aaron Perfect. about when the episode's going to, to air and release. And then, uh, I'll keep you in touch and, and we'll put together with, uh, uh, Robert, uh, some quantum week. <laughs> Perfect. And, and when you send that, I'll also uh, do a posting to my, you know, several thousand followers on LinkedIn too. So it gets extra coverage. Perfect. Let's do it. Let's blow it up. The hashtag it up. We'll push it out. We'll get lots, I love of, it. lots of love for you. All right. Thank you so much, Perfect. Joe. Take care. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.